I'm Catherine Budig. And I'm Kate Fagan. And this is Free Cookies, a humorous podcast filled with thoughtful conversations and offering delicious takeaways. And today... And today's episode, we are joined with the lovely Kate Elizabeth Russell, author of the new and amazing My Dark Vanessa. We have the same first two names, Kate Elizabeth. And then, a, and then we go our separate ways for the last name. It, it's, it's, you guys were yoked. Are you yoked? We were yoked at birth, yoked but at birth. not. Is that, what, is, that what, is that what yoked means? I don't even... Oh, well, a yoke, let's see. Yoke from an egg is Y-O-L-K. And then to yoke, Ooh. like yoga means to yoke. It's the union. So it's a unification, a drawing together, a binding. So there's Y-O-L-K and then Y-O-K-E. Yes. This reminds me of when you I- You guys f- are Y-O-K-E'd. Y-O-K-E'd, which is like yoga. We are- Yes, you're, yo- you're, you're like the yoked. yoga version. Well, that's, I never knew that. I can't say that when you said yoked, I thought maybe it just meant when you crack two eggs and they blend <laughs> together. That's kind of what I figured was happening. Think of like yoked oxen. And it reminds me of when I first learned that um, to peak my interest is different than the peak of a mountain. You know, like the first time I saw that spelled out, the peak, the, the one with the Q, like, oh, that piqued my interest. I was you like, know. and that's a very strange one because if you pique my interest, like it is going up. My interest is going up. There's a, a peak, lot of things like, like that. Like a mountain peak. So I was like, why do we need a whole separate word for this when it means the same exact thing? I think mine's probably more embarrassing. You know, when you would see a sign, you would see a sign that on a, like a school ground somewhere on a fence and it would say climbing is prohibited. Yeah. Wait, what? (laughs) I'm laughing because I'm embarrassed. I always thought that it meant that you could. (laughs) (laughs) Like pro pro is a very, you know, pro, P-R-O. That that normally has constitutes something positive. And yes, you can. And so prohibited, I'm like... I'm provided to climb this fence because it's prohibited was how I always translate it in my head. And I, you guys, I don't think I really- Is that why you were climbing the fence last week? (laughs) Is that why I'm always doing shit I'm not supposed to? Um, Yeah, I don't think I really figured that out until high school. Somebody calls out, that's prohibited. And you're like, thumbs up. I got this. (laughs) No, it's prohibited. I'm doing it. I got it. (laughs) Totally. All right, good luck with this segue. So back to Kate Elizabeth, not let's the one y- Let's yoke this segue properly. We're going to yoke this Y-O-K-E. So today is Kate Elizabeth Russell and her book, it came out, it's been about two months now or so. My Dark Vanessa, this is, you know, Stephen King put it best, actually. Stephen King well, probably always puts it best, but he said, my dark Vanessa is a hard story to read and a harder one to put down. Yeah. And for our listeners who haven't read the book, I think it probably even right here at the top of the show, I should just give a quick description yeah, a of quick the book. Yes. Um, and I'll just read this to make sure. Um, so my, my dark Vanessa, the book that we're talking about today and the author who is on the show, uh, it's exploring the psychological dynamics of the relationship between a precocious yet naive teenage girl and her magnetic and manipulative teacher, a brilliant all-consuming read that marks the explosive debut of an extraordinary new writer. That's the description for the book. But I think that front end of it really gives you a sense of the relationship dynamics that Kate, that Kate portrays in her book between uh, Vanessa, the the protagonist is 14, 14, when she goes away to boarding school and her English teacher, Jacob Strand, who's at that point in his late thirties. Um, and the relationship that ensues over the course of two decades in this protagonist's life in Vanessa's life. Right. So it's, it's been one of those interesting books because when people ask, how is it, um, Probably riveting is the best descriptor for it because it's certainly not. It's tough to say awesome. It's, yeah. I mean, the word choice is interesting because it, it's beautifully written for sure. I think her prose is fantastic. Uh, the execution is, it's just, it's a very heavy topic. And depending on your experience um, with abuse or, or any kind of trauma, this could be a highly triggering book or perhaps on the flip side, 
healing. Yeah. And, and we talked to Kate about that. Yeah. And, and the, so Catherine and I have read the book and then there's a number of people in our lives who have read the book as well. My cousin Sam read it. My mom read it. And everyone that I know who has picked it up is like in they're they're in. And one other thing that seems to always come up when you talk to someone who has read my dark Vanessa is what a delicate job Kate does in parsing out the psychology of Vanessa Mm -hmm. in the middle of all of the decisions that she's making and not just the action she takes, but then the motivation that you as the reader begin to understand for why she's speaking about Jacob Strand, her teacher in the way she's speaking about him, why she defends him, why like, it's not just that she takes action and you're kind of left trying to piece it together. You certainly have questions, but she, this, this author, you know, who I'm now referring to as Kate, um, does such a beautiful job in really showing you how our brains will work to constantly reframe the stories and create explanations for why we have taken the actions that we've taken. Right, which brings us back to the episode where we had Will Store on, which was from the season. He's the author of The Science of Storytelling, where he writes about in his book how we as individuals will always put ourselves as the hero of our story and that it's very likely that whatever we're doing, whether it's good or bad, and this goes back to Socrates, I believe, where there is no bad because whatever you're doing, that person, they can probably justify their reasons because they are the hero of the story. So even if they're quote unquote doing something horrible, they have an explanation as to why they've made that decision to do something that's horrible. And Kate Elizabeth does... (laughs) Russell. It's hard to just Kate say Elizabeth Kate because, Russell. Yeah. Not that I ever call you Kate Elizabeth, but um, does such a fantastic job of not letting the ethos of the author, you know, interfere with the truth telling of the situation. Of Vanessa's truth telling of, of, the, of the character Vanessa. And yeah. Kate's mom, we were FaceTiming. My her. mom, my mom. Yes. <laughs> Kate, my wife, not the author's <laughs> um, mother. We were FaceTiming her the other Wouldn't day. Wouldn't it be great though if we FaceTimed Kate Elizabeth Russell's mom to talk about this book? <laughs> she, that would be weird, but yeah. that would be cool. Be. Um, and Kathy Fagan is incredibly great. Well-read. Now we have another. We have Kate. We have Kate Elizabeth. We have Kathy. Okay. We're going to make this Catherine. <laughs> We're going we're gonna to do this. We got this. So we're FaceTiming her, and she just made the very astute observation that this book does such an excellent job of showing that even when something happens in a story or in your life that you think, oh, for sure, this is so horrible, there's no turning back, that if you are so deep in a situation or a story that you believe to be true, that you can skew it in any direction you want to make sure you stay on the path of this is a story and this is how you want it to be. And I think as the the reader, it was often very difficult to consume that because you, you just see the oncoming train the entire time and you're like, get out of the way, get out of the way, get out of the way. And yet this is so human. This is what we do. And especially as a young person, I mean, I can remember so many times that I probably deep down in my gut knew something was wrong or that I was getting myself into a situation that wasn't right for me. And yet, you know, my adolescent heart wanted it to be true. So I would let someone be horrible to me. I mean, certainly not in the circumstances of this book. You know, I'm just talking about young love. And I would know that I was not being cared for properly or being walked all over, but I would find a reason to make it work just constantly because I'm the hero of the story and the hero is supposed to win. And I think one, one other point about that too, is that for kids, Vanessa's age. So in this book, she's 14, 15. I think there's also, um, a predilection toward believing that you're an adult and mm, yes, that the, f- you know, the first action as an adult is not to be vulnerable or to have said that you have made a mistake. And so you, I think in this book, it does an, aw- an amazing job of showing that mentality of being 14 and 15 and thinking, well, now I have an adult since uh, I'm an adult kind of now. And mm. therefore, if I've made choices, I can't, I'm not old enough yet to say I made mistakes at the, like, you know, I'm vulnerable and vulnerability is okay. So you just kind of like get caught snowballing your own mistakes because you have, can't yet say like, maybe I'm not the adult that I right. thought 
that I, I was it, like, that's an, you can't, you can only say that when you're much older and you're looking back on it. Although I almost feel like the conviction level that I had in my teen years of feeling that I was absolutely an adult probably was stronger that I was an adult in those teen years than I am now being. And that's the flaw. An actual adult. And yeah. The, yeah. That's the fatal flaw of it. I mean, it should be prohibited. And that is interesting. And that's what she, not only do we get to see Vanessa when she's 14, which is the year 2000, we also get to see Vanessa in 2017. So she seesaws between Vanessa as an actual adult going back to these traumatic years. Yeah, And and with the context in 2017 of the Me Too movement and the Harvey Weinstein scandal, so that all of a sudden casting a different light on it. If, very, if Vanessa very different time period allows herself to see the relationship through a different light. so Or will she continue to be the hero of her own story? Exactly. You'll have to read the book to find out. Let us y- yoke together. Let us yoke Kate the Elizabeth Kate Elizabeths Russell. together. The, yes. And I will just be the Catherine Angela uh, on the side. We hope that this interview piques your interest. Ooh, but it's not prohibited <laughs> to listen. All right, let's bring her on. Kate Elizabeth Russell is originally from Eastern Maine. She holds a PhD in creative writing from the University of Kansas and an MFA from Indiana University. My Dark Vanessa is her first novel. So we are joined with Kate Elizabeth Russell. Welcome to Free Cookies. Thanks for joining us. Uh, Thank you for having me. So I have to start off before we get into the amazing novel that you wrote. So you got your PhD at KU. I did. Yeah. Yeah. So did you ever happen to take any classes in Budig Hall? (laughs) Um, Not in Budig, no, but just hearing the name brings me back. Wait, wait, to be fair. So, so Kate, we're on our walk this morning with our pups and Catherine is like, I really have to ask her about Budig Hall. And I was like, but you know, not everybody remembers the buildings of the classes in which they took classes. Like, and then Catherine's like, but we have to talk about KU. So this is our way of talking about KU. So, <laughs> so I, I grew up in Lawrence, Kansas, and my father was the chancellor there. And um, they, when Hoke Auditorium got hit by lightning, they then renamed part of it after my dad. And so I get all excited to know if people call it Budig or Budig or Bading. It, my or- last name gets butchered <laughs> all the time. Um, but That's- yeah, that's amazing. I mean, I had many a student ask me like at the beginning of semester, like how to get there. So I feel like hey, I directed a lot go. of students See, there. We're bonded for but, life. Right. <laughs> absolutely. I'm proven wrong because I can't name one building from my college experience. So. <laughs> well, thank you again. We're we're so excited to have you because both of us just love the book and more than loved it, found it so interesting. And one of those rare books where you start to analyze your own thought processes around even, you know, the mainstream media stories that we're looking at these days. And you're starting to shift how you even look at certain parts of the world. So thank you so much for that. Um, And I have to point out that Kate read your novel first and then I had it and I, we were in bed and I opened the book and Kate looked over to me and she's like, you have to, as soon as you have the moment where you're hooked, you have to just like nudge me and tell me because it's going to happen right away. And I, I forgot to tell her the moment and she got really upset with She was me. three pages in and I'm like, you're not hooked yet? And she was like, oh yeah, yeah, that happened a while ago. I was like, well, all right, <laughs> whatever. Um, but for, for our listeners who, who don't know the background of this book. Um, My Dark Vanessa. Yes. Sorry. I just realized we haven't yeah. said that out loud um, yet. For, the, for our readers who don't know like the long process of writing this book and the, you know, you starting it, I believe either in high school or college, like, can you kind of just take us through the, the, the journey of the book and the process of when you started it and kind of the little milestones along the way? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it was a labor of love for a really long time. I started, working on it specifically with the characters of Vanessa and strain when I was about 16. And I, you know, I was a writer from a really young age, so it wasn't strange for me, even at like 16 to have a big project that I was working on sort of on my own. Um, but I think it is kind of unusual that I stuck with it and, I don't really know how to explain that other than I was just obsessed with the story. And I, um, 
I studied creative writing as an undergraduate. I got a BFA in creative writing and took a lot of workshops and worked on it through that degree. And then I went straight into an MFA program and worked on this story with these characters in a lot of different forms. Like I ended up inevitably, I think, writing a lot of short stories because I was taking so many fiction workshops. And so these characters would show up um, in sort of different settings and different situations in short story form. But at the same time, I was always working on um, this novel um, because that's really how I envisioned the project from the beginning. Um, So yeah, through an MFA program and then through a few years not in school when I was just um, sort of working odd jobs and reading and writing a lot. And then eventually, um, yeah, entered into a PhD program at KU. And it was during those five years in the PhD program that I really had the um, the support and the time to really devote myself to getting this novel written once and for all. And that was, um, yeah, what allowed me to do it. And so I finished up the novel as my PhD dissertation in um, May, May 2018, right? And then... Um, the book sold that fall. And then like, here we are 18 years total of working on it. Yeah. It's such watching this all from a distance. It seems like such a wild ride that you've been on. Um, I don't want to assume, but just from outside perspective, (laughs) Um, you know, obviously you're a New York times bestseller now. Congratulations. Yes. Congrats on that. Your debut novel. It is, it's truly just one of those books that I think is going to stand out. In time, and I just wondered if you would walk us through the roller coaster of what it's been like to, you know, have this be your debut novel, have it take, you know, like you said, fifteen years, and then have it be an Oprah pick, and then have Oprah drop you, but then you became (laughs) a New York Times bestseller. So what? You know, like what? What is it like? It's yeah, it's it's it continues to be strange and surreal. Like I I feel like I keep using the word surreal over and over again to describe it, but. Um, I feel like I still can't get out of the mindset that I was in for the 18 years of working on the book when I was so devoted to it. And I had a lot of friends who were reading drafts over the course of those many years, and they were really invested in this story as well. But it was a pretty small circle, like because even the classmates that I had in creative writing programs, they, you know, they they would like read my stories that I turn in and critique it, but, and I had like mentors, but no one was like truly in my corner through the whole process other than like a handful of friends. And so I was used to this being just this thing that I was working on. And I was sort of almost like sheepish about Mm -hmm. it. Like, yeah, I'm still working on that thing, that like endless book. (laughs) (laughs) And so I was like, at times kind of embarrassed of it. Um, And then once I finished it and I had this complete draft and I started um, querying agents, it took me a long time. It took me about five months of um, constant querying yeah. to get an, an offer of rep um, from from a lit agent, which I, I wasn't surprised by. Like I, I sort of anticipated that it would take a long time because I know a lot of writers, it takes a long time for them to find an agent. And then um, once the the book was being submitted to editors, I assumed that it would sort of take a long time at that point in the process as well. Like I was set up for it to, to maybe not find a home at all because you hear that a lot. Like, Oh, your first book isn't necessarily the first book that's published. Right. Right. Um, And when that didn't happen and instead the book sold really, really quickly, like within a matter of a couple of days and then it sold in the UK and started selling in foreign territories, like within hours, it was like whiplash. It, it, <laughs> and it, um, it was a real shift in, in mindset for me, like a welcome one to go from thinking of this book as something that, I don't know, at times it kind of felt like an albatross, you know, hanging around mm-hmm. my neck to something that other people were really excited by and saw all this value in. It still feels I mean, it's a dream come true on every level, um, but it's been 
it's a, it, it was sort of like a big shift in thinking for me, I guess, from the beginning and then to have it, yeah, have it be something of a intense wild ride publication wise. Um, that's been, I guess, another level of it just feeling surreal, if that makes any sense. Yeah, absolutely. How has it, the selling of the book and now it existing in this tangible object in the world, like how, how has that changed? If it has, how has it changed you? Yeah, it, um, I mean, I don't know. I don't know if I can articulate it yet. It's so gratifying to think of the book as being read, um, and being sort of, um, I'm already seeing evidence of it really being treasured, I guess, by readers. And that's so incredible. That's so meaningful to me. And so seeing, you know, getting messages from readers who maybe really identify with Vanessa or just like love the book. I mean, I had a reader message me this morning and and she had made this incredible collage of like different book covers of, of pieces of literature that are referenced in the book and lyrics from, I made this playlist that I'm, I got sort of obsessed with. And this reader had taken like lyrics from different songs on the playlist and sort of <laughs> put it all together. I'm like, this is incredible. Like this is the type of thing that I would do when I would read a book and and sort of fall in love with it. And so to have that happen is um, making my world better in this incredible way. But at the same time, it's it's like you also feel like your skin's being sort of ripped off because you feel so vulnerable that this thing that's so, um, you know, personal to you that, that you worked on for such a long time is out there in the world and people are judging it however they will, that that's just part of the deal. Right. And it's, it's obviously the, the topic of the novel is very personal for so many people and, and the trauma that you cover. And, and I, I truly believe in the ability to take trauma and put pen to paper is a healing process, you know, both for those who, who read it. And I would imagine perhaps uh, if the, was it a healing experience for you while you were writing this? Yes and yes and no. I mean, I think, or is it like it, you know, ripping the wound over and over again? <laughs> kind of like. I mean, I had a lot of distance from the material in a way when I was working on it, and part of that was just, um, I think, working on it in academic environments where I sort of had to be constantly like making this argument that. Mm-hmm my work was that this creative work was academically legitimate and like fitting into this larger conversation. And so that, you know, even while I was writing this novel that has this really close first person perspective, I was still, you know, sort of viewing it from a distance that was helpful, but also um, Vanessa's point of view was an interesting one to write and to really like sort of, embody almost throughout the writing process because she is so perceptive. She's so perceptive. She sees everything that's going on, but she doesn't, at the same time, she's sort of skimming along the surface, um, especially in scenes that depict um, really kind of severe trauma. And so because I was writing from her perspective in such a close way, I feel like I was sort of skimming along the surface too. Mm. And so there's this weird experience I've had where I will read certain scenes that I wrote and I'll be kind of like horrified by them (laughs) because while I was writing them, I was writing them from Vanessa's point of view and she wasn't really, she's not completely, you know, really letting herself see or internalize or understand everything that's going on in the scene. And I think as the writer, I wasn't either. Um, so the sort of the idea of it being like a healing process, like, I think that's true to a certain extent, but at the same time, I was so deep into it, so deep into it that I was just Vanessa the entire time. Which is so great because I feel like throughout the novel, there's so many blurred lines between, uh, you know, right and wrong and love and obsession and reality and fiction and, and Vanessa is so convincing in her convictions, even though as the reader, you're like, no, 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 no. Stop, 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 stop. Don't do the, you know, and as the author, while you're writing, while you were writing her, was it difficult to not let your own personal ethos 
get in the way of writing the character the way you knew she had to, like the way you knew she would actually be thinking and acting in the situations? Yeah, it was really hard, really, really hard. Um, And I struggled with that really until the end. Like I remember um, there was a point in, I think it was early summer 2017, I had my PhD advisor read like a couple of hundred pages and she, her feedback was pretty, (laughs) pretty blunt in that she said like, you like, you're just bogging down these scenes with the voice because you, I was writing it with um, the verb tense was, it was written in past tense. And so Vanessa's voice, she was sort of like looking back on everything. And, and with that um, sort of retrospective perspective, I guess Vanessa was sort of, I'd describe something and then Vanessa would be like, oh, but is this really what was happening or was it actually this? And so it was this constant sort of like circling around these ideas And my PhD advisor was like, this is you in here. Like, this is you trying to sort of um, signal to the reader that you know that this is wrong Mm -hmm. or that, you know, she's being harmed here and I know it. And that wasn't what was needed. And Mm -hmm. it was really um, sort of making the the prose sort of spin its own wheels um, or like chase its own tail in a way that was like almost unreadable. And so it was, it was a struggle to get my voice out of there. And the way that I did that um, was I changed the verb tense from, from past to present. And that was one of the last big revisions I did to the book. And that made a lot of it just sort of like, click into place, I guess, in a way that it never had before, because that forced me to stay in Vanessa's voice in the moment and let her really guide the story for better or worse. Right. And, and it felt like (laughs) it was kind of frightening and it, it felt like a risk because she, you know, she makes a lot of, um, she makes a lot of decisions that I think readers and certainly I I think of as mistakes or bad decisions but that's what the book is is about and so letting her do that was um essential yeah yeah Yeah, because I I know I didn't feel this way but I know a lot of some of the feedback has been that or maybe it was during the writing process as people read drafts that Vanessa could be not a likable main character like she wasn't likable enough um and, and I think I read that you said that some of your teachers along the way encouraged you to write from like Strand's perspective and that when you did, when you, when you shifted to someone else's perspective who could then look at Vanessa and see her in a different, uh, from a different angle that I think one of them said like, you know, Vanessa really came alive or maybe the person, the reader saw them differently, but that you didn't feel like it was right somehow like you didn't like shifting to other perspectives and looking at Vanessa if I, if I have all this correct can you kind of let us know like wh- why that why you didn't feel like you wanted to shift perspectives like that yeah it um yeah I did get that that feedback especially during my MFA program which that was from like 2006 to 2009 so not that long ago but at the same time it's sort of looking back I'm like the, the a lot of the feedback I got does feel like it sort of came from a different time like a lot of it was sort of um misguided in a very gendered way mm-hmm. I guess like I don't want to call it sexist but it just it felt like informed by these ideas of what um teenage girl should be in fiction or or how they had been portrayed in fiction maybe um, and I was trying to do something different. I don't think I, I could have articulated that at the time or the, I didn't have the confidence to say like, no, I'm, I'm sort of doing my own thing and I'm doing something maybe you don't understand yet. I just kind of like took the advice and whether I agreed with it or not. So I did, I did write from um, Strain's point of view or the teacher's point of view. He had a different name then. Um, and it just felt like, a pale imitation of Lolita. It was like the Humbert Humbert model of, of seeing this Lolita-ish character in a way that was, um, you know, making her seem very um, sort of sexualized, but also like unknowable and, and almost like manic pixie dream girl-ish. Um, it just, it, it was easy to, to, to write 
because there are so many models for, for that kind of story of older men sort of gazing at, at a young girl, but it didn't feel right. And it didn't feel right because, because I don't think Strain is a character who really knows Vanessa. Like that's, that's sort of one of the struggles that she has throughout the novel is this feeling of like, he doesn't, he doesn't really understand her. He doesn't know her. And so by um, writing from the teacher's point of view, I was sort of shutting off Vanessa. Like I, I was, I was preventing myself from having access to her psychology. And that's where the heart of the story is, is in her brain, you know, and the way that she, processes these experiences in the moment versus years and years later, how her brain tries to protect her, but ends up um, in a lot of ways kind of numbing her to, to, to the trauma that she experiences, which only kind of enables it. Like it's, that's where all the, the complexity is, is in her psychology. And so it was um, imperative really that I wrote from her point of view and, and, and not just wrote from her point of view, but wrote from a close first person perspective and just centered her completely. And the name, when you named the characters in your book, the name Strain is such an interesting choice. I remember we, Kate and I, we had a debate to, about we, how we had to a pronounce big debate it. About this, about how to pronounce it. We're like, <laughs> Strain, Strain. I was like, no, I think it's just Strain. Um, and so I, I was wondering, and I also, did you start with the name Vanessa and then you found the poem or did the, did you find the poem and that gave you the name Vanessa and is strain a plane on the actual S T R A I N or am I like digging way too deep right now? (laughs) (laughs) I love it. I love it. Um, the name Vanessa, um, she wasn't, she wasn't original. The character wasn't originally named Vanessa, but it was pretty early. I think it was like my second, my second year of college that I, that I, you know, came up with the name Vanessa. Um, initially the character's name was Stella and the the character's name was an anagram of my own. It was very like my dark Stella. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but then, yeah, the name Vanessa, I had a friend named Vanessa and I always liked B names like for girl V names. And I'm like, Oh, I love it. It's perfect. I, I am. It just fit. And then I discovered, yeah, the sort of the origin of the name Vanessa. And that was um, a really weird experience where I felt like, oh, this was like faded almost. Like this is her name because the origin of Vanessa is from Jonathan Swift, right? Giving a nickname to to a younger woman who he tutored and who was in love with him. And so it it was in sort of... Like it felt more than just like serendipitous. It felt like, oh, this is, there's this huge significance to why I already settled on this name. And then when I, when I read Pale Fire, which was um, during my senior year of college, I I came across the phrase, my dark Vanessa. And that was, um, that felt really monumental as well. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, the name Strain, I had a friend who, um, when I was in my twenties, I had a friend and coworker and her um her husband they had different last names but his last name was strain and i really liked that name because it felt so stark but also kind of new england e even though strain mm-hmm. as the character in my novel he isn't from new england it just sort of fits the tone um and the atmosphere and i liked um yeah i liked that it was a homonym um and i liked his name paired with Vanessa's last name, which is Y, W-Y-E. Um, I remember one of my friends, like when I was sort of um, deciding on these names and sort of playing with them, one of my friends said like, their last names sound like, like an like a conversation you might overhear at a bar or something like this intimate conversation of strain why strain why and so I really yeah they just fit like I I feel like for me um deciding on characters names a lot of it comes down to like a gut feeling totally like I know it's right when I when I come across it is is this friend's husband still in your life and is he like oh my god (laughs) no no definitely a friend that I lost touch with is that Um, friend like are you trying to tell me something Kate because whoa (laughs) 
and his he had a hyphenated last name, so it was only part of his <laughs> okay, last yeah. name. But yeah. So when the dynamic that you the you write about is is obviously when it comes from a, a writing point of view, like so rich to explore a, a character's mindset and the decisions they make and how they might view what happened to them. Yet at the same time, it seems like it's also cost you, and maybe I'm projecting here, like cost you a lot of headache to be able to write about this and then have other people wonder why you're writing about this and the way in which you write about this. And I guess within that, um, the question is, did you know all along throughout the course of the 18 years as you ran this by teachers that it was like a really fraught subject? And did that ever feel like one of like a reason for you to like just pick something simpler? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's strange looking back because I did always know, you know, I knew that this, that the subject matter was difficult and I knew that, um, it invited a certain level of like questioning or maybe assumptions about me and why I was writing it and and what was driving me towards it. But, um, even from a young age, I didn't really care so much about that because I believed in this story, this big project so much that it was like, well, let them think what they think that doesn't matter because I have this, I have this creative material that I know if I can get it right, then it's going to be great. Like I believed that even as like a teenager. Um, but yeah, it's, it, it became a lot more intense once it was actually going to be published. Right. And so I, um, when I was in my PhD program, I spent a fair amount of time studying the way that, um, contemporary narratives of sexual abuse, regardless of genre, but how those narratives of sexual abuse were received critically, you know, and received by readers. Um, and for the most part, um, what I found was that narratives of sexual abuse were like treated super unfairly and they, and they were, um, you know, questions would be, um, sort of pointed at these novels or memoirs or what have you that weren't really addressed, uh, to other narratives, not of sexual abuse, like narratives of sexual abuse, they invite questions like, why does this exist? Like, what is the point of this book existing in the world? And, and <laughs> what is it teaching us? And um, should it have been written at all? And, and why would someone write this? Like, what is wrong with a writer that they would produce such a work as, as this? And so I, um, I guess going because of that, because I had spent some time studying that, I went into the publication process expecting it anticipating that, that sort of reaction. And, and I tried to, um, set some boundaries, I guess, you know, I just, I tried to decide right away how I wanted to talk about the subject matter in relation to myself and, and to draw a line between myself and whatever experiences I've had in this, in this fictional story that I've written in this fictional character. And that was helpful. It was really helpful because it ended up allowing me to, um, sort of have, have solid ground to stand on, I guess, through, through the publication process. Um, but to, to answer your actual question, (laughs) I never really, I never considered giving it up and writing something easier because I wasn't interested in anything else enough. Like I was so devoted to these characters and to this story that it was sort of unthinkable, like the thought of giving up on it. Um, But I, I had long ago made peace with the idea of it never being published because it was so difficult 
you know. Mm-hmm. I'm really glad you digressed on that because that's something, and I don't know if this is so weird to think that people that you've never met and you don't know, like go on dog walks and are <laughs> concerned about you. Um, <laughs> but we have been, and, you know, just watching, like you said, you know, the, the subject in relationship to you and, and people wanting to know more about your personal experience when this is a work of fiction, this is a novel. And um, there was this great quote that Glennon Doyle put up on her Instagram a couple days ago or a couple days ago. And she said something along the lines of, you know, when a man puts out his work in the world, the world asks, is his work working? And when a woman puts out her work, the world asks, is she worthy of putting out work? And Mm. I just wanted to know what that meant to you because, you know, we were just talking about even Lolita written by a man. I'm like, was he getting slammed right. for I'm this? not sure. You know, maybe people maybe. said, <laughs> why does but, this, this shouldn't exist? Maybe, I mean, I didn't follow the critiques of course. that closely. We could have, we could have done more It feels research, like that still. applies to this experience for you. I don't know how you see it. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I don't, on the one hand, I feel like it's, that's like part of a conversation that I'm like, I don't know how valuable my voice is part of it because my, ideal relationship to my work and sort of the work at large or the reading public is to just write what I write, have it be Mm -hmm. published and then sort of throw it out into the world and have people react to it however they want. Um, But it's more, honestly, this might make me sound like a jerk or kind of like smug, which I don't mean this way, but like I find a lot of it's kind of amusing because it's, I think because I anticipated so much of this. And so when I see a reaction to my book that is like questioning, like what is the value of this novel? I'm like, I almost have like this imaginary bingo card, right? Of (laughs) things people say (laughs) in response to narratives of sexual abuse that make them uncomfortable. And I'm like, there's that phrase and there's that phrase and there's that kind of like weird, unfair question. Um, yeah, like it doesn't, it just, it doesn't surprise me. And like I said, I am kind of on some level amused by it. And what I am trying to do is to take all of this experience of, of having the book published and, and sort of seeing the response to it and trying to find some kind of creative value in that. And I'm like working on a new project slowly but surely I'm too superstitious to call it a book so I keep referring to it as a project but um <laughs> yeah I have a new character in my in my head who um is achieving some level of creative success and and sort of just going through a somewhat similar experience mm-hmm. to me and I'm trying to use it um in that way but that's how I deal and that's how I make sort of make sense of my own life is just try to turn it into fiction I love it that you're bubble wrapped you that it's, it's yeah <laughs> do you do you read your reviews like do you go on to Goodreads and see what people say or do you straight up like just don't even touch that <laughs> not Goodreads so much. Goodreads is interesting because for so much of the publication process, and I think a lot of writers probably feel this way, Goodreads is like the place where things are happening. Mm-hmm. Like before, long, you know, when people are sort of reacting to galleys and stuff. And right. so Goodreads yeah. is really hard to stay away from in the lead up to publication. But then it, I found it just got like overwhelming. Um, <laughs> and so yeah, read read the like the critical like the or the like the the reviews that are published and um, like publications and read those when they came in. But now I'm more sort of just engaging with um, messages that readers send to me, and those are so that's that's Sorry. the real stuff yeah. too. Yeah. yeah. Now, since this manuscript has been in your life for 18 years and you know, along those, throughout those 18 years, perhaps it was just like a malleable object and you could just keep working on it and perfecting it. Uh, Do you, do you miss its existence in your life? I think I do, but I think it also hasn't hit me yet entirely because 
I'm still finding ways to engage with it. Like I'm posting a fair amount on Mm-hmm. Instagram, like I'm doing a, a series of posts where I look at the playlist I've made and for the for the novel, and I sort of write a little mini essay in an Instagram post where I explain the significance of the song in regards to the plot and themes and whatnot. And like, so I'm still doing little things like that that are still keeping me in the world of the book, um, and I am trying to view that less uh, as me like still clinging to the book, unable to let go. Mm-hmm. And more just like, okay, I'm gradually sort of like letting it go. Um, but I do miss the um, the experience of just being so submerged in the work that I was like writing 10 hours a day. The, you know, that was like all I wanted to do. I would get up and start writing and then write until I couldn't couldn't stay awake anymore yeah it was like this exhilarating level of um of work that was unsustainable right but for at least a couple of years like the last couple of years before finishing it that was sort of the clip I was working at and I I miss that I do I I would hate to read your little insert in like a book about how genius, creative, you know, creative people work. I like the ones that tell me that it's like 90 minutes and then you can like go for a walk and then you can watch TV. Like those are the ones that I like to read, not the 10 hours at a time. (laughs) Um, Speaking of music, Fiona Apple's new album. Yay. nay. What what do we think? What do we think? Genius. Like, I mean, of course it was going to be genius in my opinion, because she is my creative idol and role model and I love her so much it's like ridiculous but it's truly incredible to see an artist like just do exactly what she wants and record that album in her home where she loves to be and like compared to sort of how she was framed when she was so young and, and coming out with her first album and people tried so hard to dismiss her like what she's become in her career is just it's astounding I love her. That so debut album was much. everything. I completely, right? just the close up of her eyes. Oh my God. <laughs> All right. So before we, She's we've incredible. got a, a couple, know, we've got a few rapid fire, but before we do um, one question about the book, and I don't even know if you're willing to answer this question for people, but so I don't know if you were a fan of a league of their own. <laughs> were, Wait, of what? A of league, what? A what? league of their own. Did you, did you ever oh, watch that? Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you thought it was a hard right term, but I believe if my brain will work properly, I can bring this back. Kate, I was getting nervous too. Yeah. I was getting so nervous. So, A League of Their Own, <laughs> the, the final scene where Gina Davis drops the ball at home plate and Kit Kit is running home. And maybe you don't remember. Kate, maybe you're not as passionate about this movie as I am. But Kit, Kit is running home. You know, there's the feud between Kit and Gina, and Kit slams into Gina, and Gina the ball rolls out of her hand. And the question for anyone who has, is obsessed with the league of their own has always been, did Gina Davis, her, you know, obviously Dottie, Dottie, Dottie in the movie, did she let the ball go or did Kit truly knock the ball out of her hand? Now I'm not asking for your opinion on this, but I am, <laughs> I Where do, you going? <laughs> if you could answer for me how I'm supposed to feel about Henry, if, mm. if, if you, because I have other examples of this, right? Lost in translation with Bill Murray and Scarlett Johansson yeah, at the end, he whispers right. something to her, and I want to know. But I'm, you know, everybody in the creative world is like, you're not allowed to know. It's better to not know. <laughs> is there something you can tell me about how I'm supposed to feel about Henry? We want to know how to feel. Tell us how to feel. I mean, I, I don't know how to feel about Henry. And part of what part of the benefit I think of getting the book published is I get to hear what other people think okay. about Henry. So I, I did, I did write him partly like wanting him to be something of a double of strain, but at the same time, not a double at all. So yeah, I mean, I, that my, doesn't, yeah, I, and this is something else we talked about on the dog walk. I did not have bad feelings toward Henry. I'm like, it's like Sesame Street here. That's the feeling I put bad to it, but I didn't feel negative feelings about Henry. I thought he was in almost an unwinnable position and trying to navigate Mm -hmm. it as best he could. And Catherine had a little bit more of a negative reaction 
to Henry. Is that fair to say? Oh, at the very end, you mean? Yeah, just his character in general. Like, was he basically Strand, but just different time in Vanessa's life, different... I seesawed with him. I really did. Yeah. I did. So anyway, that's the feedback of two readers. Um, (laughs) Just to help you. And that question took a very long time, but thank you for humoring us. This was one that she did not tell me she was going to ask, so I was sitting here and my eyeballs getting big. Catherine, you got some rapid fire ones? Yes, we're going to go for just like short, fun author questions. Okay. All right. So last book you read. Uh, I don't even know. Oh, Red, White, and Royal Blue by Casey McQuinston. Oh, okay. Um, favorite book as a child? Uh, Julie of the Wolves by, oh, who wrote that? that? Julie of the Wolves. I can't remember who wrote it. Julie of the Wolf. Okay. Yeah, that's a new one for me. Okay. Um, <laughs> book that you have fake read, you know, like the classics when people are like, oh yeah, I've totally read that, but not really. Uh, Moby, Moby Dick. Yeah, fair enough. 100%. Fair yeah. Nobody's enough. read that book, let's be honest. Um, what book do you wish you had written? Oh, The Kiss by Katherine Harrison. But that's a, me- that's a memoir and it's so personal and gutting and heart-wrenching. Like I don't wish that I had lived it, but right. it's one of the most beautiful pieces of writing I've ever read. Okay. I love that. Um, I know this one's so generic, but I think it's fun. So three authors, alive or dead, who would you go have dinner with and why? Ooh, um, Nabokov for sure, because that would sure. be um, incredible. Maybe Sylvia Plath would be would be <laughs> fun. And I don't know. I don't know. I can't Two think of good. a good third. You could be the third. I'm going to try. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> then you could just have a night and watch Netflix because it's just you. <laughs> um, I don't I don't know if this one will work, but Jordan or LeBron. Uh, LeBron. All right. Okay. <laughs> Kit or Dottie? <laughs> That's a hard one. No, it it's is. Hard one. I haven't seen, I don't think I've seen the movie for at least like 10 years. And I feel like my, like, I want to say Kit. I'm so team I, Kit. Yeah. You know, but I feel like maybe if I rewatched it now, I might have a different answer. Mm-hmm. And most importantly, chocolate chip or oatmeal raisin? <laughs> Ooh, chocolate chips. Yes. But I like oatmeal chocolate chips. Oh, like, that's a we, really good. We just yeah, talked yeah. with Madeline Miller and she did the same thing. And we, we called oh, really? her a crafty yeah. politician. <laughs> but, but also <laughs> I'm chocolate chip and Kate is oatmeal raisin. But also the best, best cookie, oatmeal chocolate chip. That's it where is. it's at. Right. That's where yes. it's at. Awesome. Oh, Kate, thank you so much. We really appreciate your time. And oh, congratulations on such a masterpiece. Of, yeah. Thank you. It's amazing. Yes. This was wonderful. That was Kate Elizabeth Russell. Why are you so calm? Interviewed by Kathleen Elizabeth Fagan and Catherine Angela Louise Budig. I get the last name. (laughs) You get the last name? Yeah. Oh, the last name that's said. Oh, and also you mentioned my last name. I also mentioned, did I not mention my name? Kathleen Elizabeth Fagan. Oh, did she mention Kate Elizabeth Russell. I think we all got our last names. Okay. You guys, I stopped listening. (laughs) You were like, this is some boring shit that my wife's about to say. I'm ready to tune in when it's my turn. And that's why it's a wrap. <laughs> we are produced by Lindsay Collins of FNB Radio. You can find us on Instagram at Free Cookies Podcast or email us at freecookiespodcast at gmail.com. Don't forget to support the show on Patreon, patreon.com slash free cookies. And... Don't forget, don't forget if you haven't to rate and review our show on Apple Podcasts, that means the world to us. And we just want to give a shout out to TLA, to Jay Sung, and also to Annie Hops. Thank you for your lovely, very long and interesting responses, actually. These are just very thorough and appreciate that. If you and if you want to read that good content, go to our Apple page and go read our reviews. Great. And we will read them. We are reading them. So thank you. And if you are enjoying the season and you like to read, you can join my book club on Instagram. It is at the Inky Phoenix. Uh, we, a lot of the authors that we are having on the show have been picks and lots of fun literary content on there for you to enjoy. So, so come join us. That's right. Climb to the peak of the mountaintop of book reading. Pages are not prohibited. <laughs> All right, we out. <laughs>